0: So last couple of messages here in this broader extended section in Mark, which kind of began in, in chapter 8, midway through chapter 8, and, and could be summarized by, I would say, kingdom perspective. What it looks like to come into the kingdom, to walk into the kingdom, the way of Jesus. This is the way to the cross. This whole, this whole extended section, they are on their way and that phrase is repeated again and again while they were on their way. Jesus on the way. They're on their way to Jerusalem and, and Jesus has much kingdom work and much kingdom teaching to, to pass on to his disciples and to those following him because if you read it, it seems like he's dragging his feet and I guess we couldn't blame him because he knows what's coming for him in Jerusalem but he's, he's not dragging his feet. This is where he primarily does his discipleship, his training, it's on the road, it's in life with his followers, it's not in a classroom, it's not in a sanctuary, it's real practical life on life and the encounters that come, especially with the hurting and the needy, the lost and the last and the least of these. We see a lot of repetition in this extended section which runs through uh, chapter 10 and we're almost there. The repetition of the way and of walking, of perception in the kingdom, of some coming to see and receive, while those closest to Jesus, the disciples, continue to struggle to perceive and receive and accept his teaching and his ways. The Pharisees, the ones that should have known and received the Messiah, continue to refuse and reject and dismiss him. Mark chapter 8, verse 17 and 18 is the question that probably hangs as a banner over this whole section, the questions that Jesus asks his disciples. Do you still not see and understand? Are your hearts still hardened? You have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear. And don't you remember? Probably calling them to remember not only his work and his teaching, but the promises of Scripture that were being fulfilled, calling them to remembrance. Those questions should hang for us today and we should receive them today as one's walking toward Jesus, drawing near to him, striving to follow him. Will we be humble enough to to ask those questions? I think that's what Mark would want his hearers, his readers to ask, who am I in this story? Am I any different than than one of these disciples who has said yes to follow him and continues to, to struggle to truly believe? Do I have a hardened heart? Have I already made up my mind in matters? Am I willing to bring my my questions and my my doubts to Jesus? Mark wants to show us what Jesus wants to do spiritually, the signs of his healing and his deliverance for those that come to him are meant to not only deliver and heal and save those present with him, but to, to stand as signs for what he wants to do for all of us. That's why kind of at the beginning and the end, a book ending of this section, Jesus heals a blind man. We'll see it in the, in the next story, blind Bartimaeus having eyes to see. And then in the middle of, of this extended section, he, he brought uh, hearing to a deaf man because Jesus will give eyes to see spiritually and ears to hear spiritually, and he will soften our hearts if we will come and we will follow him. The prayer of the Father in Mark 9, which we've returned to again and again, I think is is a beautiful and raw prayer for all disciples of Jesus. And we're invited to pray it, to come to Jesus in desperation and and, and believe that he can heal, he can deliver on behalf of ourselves or our family. He can rescue. That's who he is. And, And the prayer is simply, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the ongoing walk of discipleship is to come to Jesus with that faith, recognizing even that faith is not enough from our perspective. And yet Jesus answers it. Jesus heals it. As we draw near to him, he delivers and rescues. The blind see, the deaf hear, the demon possessed and oppressed are delivered. Children are honored and esteemed and blessed. It's these last and least likely ones that Mark shows a stand in contrast even to the ones that we would assume would be elevated and esteemed and rewarded. The privileged and the rich. The ones that grew up in the right family. They are the ones that continue to struggle and stumble along the way. To walk in the kingdom and that's the upside-down kingdom. It's the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. And this passage that we heard read probably exemplifies it as well as any other passage or teaching of Jesus in Mark, showing how the kingdom of God is upside-down from our perspective, and he's trying to straighten all things out. For the third time in this broader section Jesus foretells of his arrest and persecution and crucifixion now with more detail than the other two every time he ends with and the son of man or and I will rise again and it seems that the disciples just don't hear that part they totally miss it every time they are uh, struggling to receive or outright rejecting that teaching you may remember in eight thirty-one, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him for saying that that's going to happen And we know probably the interaction there Therefore, Jesus puts him aside and says, your eyes are on things of the world, not on on kingdom things, not on eternal things. In chapter 9, verse 30, again, he foretells of what's coming for for him in Jerusalem. And they did not understand and they were afraid. And then the very next scene after that, they're arguing amongst themselves, who is the greatest of, of them? Totally not receiving, not grasping the kingdom reality. Something similar happens here. Tragically ironic, with Jesus giving the most detailed of what's going to come for his, his false arrest and his persecution and his suffering, it seems that they don't even hear. James and John come and almost essentially say, yes, yes, Jesus, but enough about that. How about we talk about us, our position in the kingdom, what you can do for us? We want to sit at your right and your left in the kingdom. Now, perhaps they had in mind this throne room, as some have articulated, but the text is a little more vague. It could have in mind a banquet hall, a position of honor and esteem, or it could have this idea of position of power. But either way, their hearts are desiring to be elevated, to be esteemed, to be honored. This is worldly, power-seeking, self-aggrandizing behavior on full display, totally antithetical to the kingdom of God, the upside-down kingdom. You may remember that James and John were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, Boanerges, the Sons of Thunder. Maybe it's for this kind of brashness, this kind of personality uh, that probably served them well in many areas of life, but certainly became a stumbling block for true humility to walk. In the kingdom. Uh, Jesus could have called down thunder from heaven, I suppose, and showed them their rightful place, but he engages them. He draws them into relationship. He says, You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? These are metaphors of what's coming, metaphors uh, of what's being set before him, the cup. The cup in the, in, the, in the first testament in the Hebrew scriptures was, was often uh, something that was destined to come and even the wrath of God being poured out into, into a cup. And Jesus says, can you drink of, of this? Can you drink what's being set before me? Can you be baptized with this same baptism? Perhaps this idea of baptism in the grave being under, under the earth. This is what's coming for them. They quickly say, yes, we can. <laughs> Almost without thinking or, hey, Jesus is engaging us. Maybe he's about to give us what we're asking here if we will simply affirm, yes, we'll we'll do anything. Have they even thought it through? And yet Jesus affirms, yes, you will. In fact, you will walk this path out. He seems to know something that they don't yet know. We know that James was later executed by Herod. It's recorded in Acts chapter 12. Uh, extra-biblical testimony says that John was arrested and persecuted and maybe eventually martyred, but his life was sought as well, and he was banished to the island of Patmos. So they, they would walk through the same suffering and persecution that Jesus was walking toward, though at this point, their faith has not ascended to that level. That will be their reward, though. That's the highest reward and the highest honor. Not to sit at at the right or left hand in in their picture of what kingdom power looks like, but to know Christ in his way and to endure in his sufferings. The Apostle Paul said, This is the highest reward of all. This is the greatest joy of this life. At the end of his life, while he's in chains awaiting uh, his trial before Nero in Rome, he wrote a couple letters kind of some famous letters, uh, Philippians being one of them. In Philippians 3, verse 7 and following, Paul said, Whatever used to be to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings to become like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is faith that takes a lifetime of tempering to be able to express that at a heart and desire level. James and John, at this point, of their request had yet to even be placed into the fire, and that would come. So the other ten here of what James and John have done and what they've asked, and they're indignant. Uh, it's one of the only times we see them indignant, and I wonder if it's because they weren't the first ones to ask Jesus this request. Were they really so rightfully minded? The rest of the story says no. So whatever they were indignant for, Jesus was indignant toward other things in the Gospels. You may remember it not too long ago that Jesus was indignant when they were stopping the little children from coming to him. His kingdom perspective and his reality was still so much different than theirs. But yet Jesus still patiently calls them together, which always gives us great hope. When we see from the outside looking in this, this uh, totally mismatched kingdom priorities, it gives us hope for the ones that we're ourselves blinded to, that Jesus would draw us in And teach us and be patient with us. He says, "'You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, rulers of the the ethnic one, the other nations of the world, their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many.'" Greatness in God's kingdom is not a race to the top like the kingdoms of the world, but the ra- a race to the bottom. That's where true greatness is. That's what Jesus has modeled for us. It, we, should, we should note that Jesus affirms greatness. He affirms honor and, and esteem. He says there is, there is greatness in the kingdom. It just doesn't look at all like the ways of the world. It's upside down. Greatness is service. Greatness is positional sacrifice great greatness is laying down your life for another now the phrase translated those who are regarded as rulers could be easily translated those who seem or appear to be rulers in the world but they are truly not because they they rule with heavy hands with force with manipulation with oppression with tyranny doing anything necessary to gain power and to keep it. This is the way of the world, and it always has been. Jesus puts his finger right on it. In a quote attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte, he says, Alexander and Caesar and Charlemagne and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions would die for him. There's no evidence that Napoleon ever had faith or surrendered to Jesus. And if he said this, he clearly articulates the contrast between those two kingdoms. The contrast of the way of the world and all, real, all world powers and kingdoms and nations that have risen and fallen have been by force and exertions of power. Whoever has the greatest and the most can keep it. And there's obviously always a fight for it. But greatness in Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It takes the form of a servant and a slave. I always have to clarify when we use that term because of the weight of that term for us in English and our history. It's the word doulos in Greek, which really means more of a bond servant. Not not necessarily always an esteemed position or even an honored position, but it, it could have been. It was a willing position of servitude. In the in the Hebrew scriptures, it teaches of uh, slavery was often abusive and manipulative, and it was hard to get out of of slavery. And it could happen through through war spoils. It could happen through incredible indebtedness. So, you, uh, someone would would serve within a household to try to pay back a debt and work their way up in that economy. Uh, there was obviously also uh, to be, get out of debt. Some would sell even their children into a life. Of slavery, A loss was one who willingly gave themselves to the service of the family, though they did not need to remain in that household and that estate. And that tends to be what, what Paul has in mind. It's a very lowly position, but it's one that was willingly taken. And so what Jesus says is, is servitude, is is the word diakonos in the Greek. That's about character. And doulos in the Greek, a bond servant is about position. One who willingly gives themselves to the service of another, another household, to give up their freedoms, to advance another family. And that's what Jesus says is the picture of greatness in his kingdom. One that in character looks to serve others and one that in position willingly accepts the lowly place. The Apostle Paul famously describes this in Jesus. Jesus did this very thing. Jesus claimed it, the Son of Man, using uh, from Daniel and Ezekiel a phrase of a, of a messianic title, claiming it for himself. Even the Son of Man came to live this way, to serve this way. And the Apostle Paul, I, I don't think uh, there's anywhere else that describes what Jesus had done any better than, than Paul, even in poetic format. And back to Philippians but chapter 2, verses 3 and following Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others greater than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. For your attitude, your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, very one nature with God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, to be grasped tightly, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The race to the bottom was actually the way to the top in God's kingdom economy. Through Jesus' posture of humility and servitude, he is elevated and esteemed and honored by God the Father. I think Paul's life is, is a great picture of this progression of one who began in his early days With incredible zeal, he claims as much throughout many of his writings. At a younger age, elevated to a high position, had the status and the birth and the wisdom and the knowledge that set him apart as a leader amongst the Jews. And he persecuted the church and was proud to do so, believing he was doing the will of God. That this blasphemer Jesus and this band of his followers must be eradicated they are dishonoring the name of Yahweh. So believing he's doing the will of God. He becomes a leader, striving in his zeal for approval, for power, for the ways of the world, the ways of the kingdom world. Well, Jesus met him, we know, and gave him new sight, helped him to see kingdom reality. And from then on, his life totally changed and transformed. And he walked in greater and greater humility throughout the extent of his life a process of sanctification and holiness. So that toward the end of his life, Paul, as we already read, claims that his greatest desire is to share in the fellowship of sufferings. He says often that he boasts only in Christ and what Christ has done to him. A picture of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 29, where Paul highlights his own weakness and makes comparisons. He says, who is weak and I do not feel weak, who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. I was in Damascus one time, and the governor under King Eratos gave order to arrest me, so I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall, and I slipped out of his hands. And of all that Paul had done and accomplished, a picture of what he chooses to boast in Is how he had to have others put him into a basket, bringing bringing to mind the baby Moses, helpless, put into a basket to be delivered and saved. I had others put, put me into a basket and lower me down the wall just so I could slip through his hands. This is the picture that Paul uses to boast in his weakness and his dependence on others. And that his life has really already been laid down, lowered, As he famously claimed in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And famously in Galatians 1.10, he said, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. But in that, you can almost hear his ongoing wrestling, trying to continue to put to death the life that strives for honor and esteem and recognition and say, no longer, my life is forfeit to the greater one. And in that, in that path to his ultimate death, he was highly esteemed and highly honored, but in his life knew very little of that. And that seems to be the way of the kingdom We're still so drawn to celebrities and to status and to esteem and and reputation. Even within the church today, we're still still drawn to a celebrity-type pastor. Well, not you. (laughs) Very clearly, you're here today. But how many times have we seen the the billboards or the books with the pastor's face upon them? And how, how can you just not cringe at that? Are these pastors, whether it was through their publicists or marketers or whatever, gonna kind of come to Jesus one day and say, Look at have you read my books? Have you seen my billboard? You want me at, at your right or your left, right, Jesus? We know that it means and will mean nothing. Amazing grace if we have a seat at the table. Shouldn't we be striving for anonymity if we're gonna strive for anything? Isn't that the goal? Not that we are known, but that he is. Not that memory of us remains, but that his endures forever. And if he he wants our name or our impact to go on, may it be. But most likely, it will fade like a mist. And do we receive that and take joy in that? Because our eternal hope is to know forever and proclaim him as king above all. Anonymous for Jesus. Jesus followers anonymous. J.F.A. If only the church could have the kind of anonymity and community that comes in many of those A groups. A modern day example is Eugene Peterson. I'm listening to his biography now and encouraged by it. Well known for The Message and many other books. Uh, He was practically crushed by the notoriety and acclaim that came after he finally finished the translation of The Message. He was a professor at Regents College at the time and retired early because he could not handle the fact that essentially overnight, his sparsely attended classes swelled to hundreds of people coming to visit and to listen to him. He was getting hundreds of speaking requests, sometimes lucrative ones, and for new, new writing projects every, uh, every year. And he turned them down, he retired early, and he moved to Flathead Lake, in Montana and lived the rest of his days in solitude and he wrote in his journal no one here knows me and if they do they don't care about anything i've done how refreshing he spent his his life in service to god and could not handle the fact that he was being honored and esteemed what he felt like was more highly than jesus Now, to say this, we must be careful that we don't trade a life of over God or from God to a life for God. Let me articulate. I've done that before, drawing from those simple descriptions that Pastor Sky Dutani walks through in his book with and makes a big part of his ministry. I know some of you are listening to his or following along with his uh, With God daily devotional series this year, and I still encourage that if you have missed out, it's not too late. There's a chance to to connect. I'm greatly encouraged by his ministry and continually reminded of how easy it is and natural it is for us to take a a wrong posture in our relationship toward God. And right in this passage, we see that the world rulers of the Gentiles that were uh, mentioned by Jesus, they would live a life over God, right? Dismissing God, disregarding God, wanting to be their own gods. The Jews... And and religious leaders were primarily living a life under God. Believing God is the creator God, the holy God. We must live holy lives and live live well so that we are not under his wrath. Perhaps that we could receive from him, which is a life from God. And it seems that the disciples were moving to a life from God. As Jesus was teaching them and opening up their eyes to kingdom reality... They show that they've moved, but only marginally, to a life from God. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. We want to receive from you. We're the faithful ones. We've left all, these, all of this to follow you. Give to us what we ask. This is their posture. Because of their sacrifice and their faithfulness, they believe that God will give to them. He says, I'll give you a hundredfold of all that has been left in my kingdom. It's almost as if they say, we don't need any of that, but what we do want is esteem and honor and power in your kingdom. They're still looking for something that, that God could give to them, that Jesus could promise to, to them in his kingdom, a life from God. And many live this way today. It's, it's probably best described by the modern-day prosperity gospel. Do enough, obey enough, be holy enough, give enough, believe enough, and on and on. And God will abundantly reward you forever and maybe here and now. So we must be careful if we see our heart reflected in in any of those, taking a posture over God or under God or even from God, that we don't simply move from there to a life for God. That's the next natural progression. And it's a dangerous one. I think we're so used to hearing it. Tell me if you've heard any sermons like this or any messages being proclaimed that the way to honor God, the right way to live is to serve God. To give, to sacrifice, to embrace suffering and persecution if it comes, to choose endurance and faithfulness, to walk with joy. I'll, I'll do it. I'll live this life. Jesus, I give my life for you. That sounds close to right, doesn't it? I know it's often the, the teaching and preaching that I've, I've received and I've struggled To want to live a life for God and have missed a life with God. I'm I'm wondering, I'm convicted, I'm humbled by how, how much of my preaching has unwittingly sounded like that over 12 years. If you have ever heard a message here and walked out feeling like, I need to work harder, I need to be better, I need to be more disciplined. I need to, whatever, whatever that, that phrase feels like as translated to you, either either I have failed to communicate well, or the translation software that your brain is using is corrupt. I'm trying to use a little tech humor, which in itself is an oxymoron. That's not kingdom life. That's not gospel. That's not good news. That you need to go be better to earn God's favor, to be with him. He's already with us. He already loves us deeply. He delights in us. He desires us to be with him, and he's made that possible. From that posture, we are freed to give, to serve, to love, to receive the fruit of the Spirit that he wants to grow in us. Our human nature tends to insert the must when it's not there. In the story of God. To insert the must. What must we do? We saw it earlier in chapter 10. The rich young man comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Born from hopefully the right heart and desire. To have more of the things of God. More of the kingdom. But missing the heart of God. That he has already done all. We must do nothing but receive to understand our identity, that our Creator God has already loved us, chose to create us and make us and breathe life into us, and to offer life forever because of His love, not because of who we are. And right in this passage, if we return to Jesus' words here, many translations say this verse 43 Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first. Must be slave of all. The only problem is that word must is not in the original text. Human translators have translated that in. Literally it reads, whoever desires to become great will become a servant. Whoever desires to be first will become a bond servant of all. We can return to the original call of Jesus for his disciples. Come, Follow me and I will make you. I will give you something new. Be near me, be with me, and you will be transformed. Those who out of a desire for more of God and more of his kingdom will become servants and bondservants by proximity to Jesus. We will be transformed. That's our future reality and promise. It will simply come. We will become more and more like Him. Not that there won't be times where we feel like in effort and in faithfulness that there is discipline, but that our primary work is to be with God, to dwell with Him as He dwells with us, to draw near to Him. This is His perspective. This is His promise. This is what greatness looks like. Could there be anything greater than that the God who has made all things has made us. Our God has made us in their image to reflect them into the world, to be light in the darkness and to have the Spirit dwell in us and with us all days. And if we can do nothing to change that love and to change that identity based on our past or our present or our future, what we know or don't know, what we do or don't do, then we are free, and we are free to live at peace, to live at rest, to live in joy. So today, our call is to draw near to God as he has drawn near to us, to race to the bottom because that's the place that we are highly esteemed from his perspective. May we come to know the heart of God, the fullness of life as we take a posture of receiving again today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for all that you've done, and that feels like not enough to express our heart. I pray you take what is in our heart, and we know you will translate that correctly. Sometimes all we can pray from our soul and our spirit is like groanings to you. And you speak that language. You speak that heart language. So while these friends and these family here, some of their groaning prayers are lament and are hurt and are longing. Some of them are doubt, are discouragement, are wonderings, are wrestlings. Some is gratitude and joy and hope, and faith. And sometimes all mixed together, we bring our heart to you. We draw near to you, to the fullest ability that we have, knowing it's not enough. And so your promise is you will draw near to us. You are not far from us. You're present here in our midst. I pray, God, that you would do the healing work in heart, soul, mind, and strengthen bodies that we all desperately need. May we not walk in our own power and our own strength, but receive from you. Your love for us, what you declare in your word, what you have declared with your life, is more than enough. It's staggering. We could never earn it, but we receive it again today. Help us to love like that as we walk with you. Encourage your sons and daughters here today by the power of your love and the presence of your spirit. And may we see the fruit of your spirit growing in all ways in the days ahead. Unto your glory and for our joy, we pray, amen.